Welcome to Rocket Talk. I am Justin Landon, your host, and this is a bit of a pop-up episode. Uh, I had some folks booked to record with, but my daughter broke her arm last week, falling off a slide, and the whole week kind of went sideways. So I realized tonight that I didn't have an episode for tomorrow. So tonight I'm drinking beer and found myself a guest, which is awesome because uh, my guest is someone I hold in the highest esteem. His name is Ken, and he's the dude behind Nethspace, the genre <laughs> blog that's, big, that's uh, been around almost as long as blogs have existed. That's generous, but thank you for having me uh, as the injury replacement for Rocket Talk. That's right, the emergency injury replacement. How long have you been blogging, Ken? I think it's been about nine years, ten years this this winter. So, ten years. And it's been at uh, nethspace.blogspot.com, like, the entire ten years? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, pretty much the same format. I think I changed it once in 2007. So, uh, a lot of people may not realize this, but you are essentially the primary reason anyone has ever read anything I've written. You've mentioned that before, so you're going to have to share the story. So, I started blogging in 2011-2012, and uh, I had posted a few things, which of course when you first start out nobody pays any attention to, but I wrote a piece about Steven Erickson's series, and I tweeted it, or no, it wasn't Steve, it was Steven Erickson and Nora Jemison. I wrote about both of their books simultaneously and kind of compared some things, and I tweeted it at you thinking you might enjoy it, and then you had then you retweeted it. And uh, and that was the day that people started. I actually got people coming to my website. Ah, so you were the random solicitor, and I actually listened. That's right. That's right. I said, "Hey, you might find this interesting," and you looked at it and you retweeted it, and uh, I think you even posted it on the Westeros forums. Okay, that was back when I was still doing forums. <laughs> right. Which now, of course, when you started blogging, like forums were the jam, right? There like was no social media. Yeah, I was on forums for at least five or six years before blogging. I think I still have a live journal mirror that's active someplace, but... Yeah, it's amazing to me that live journal still exists, because I, I, nobody really uses it anymore, except uh, George R. R. Martin and Sean and McGuire. I guess I guess it works for them. They both seem to be doing just, just fine. <laughs> I think one of the most interesting things about you as a blogger, you've never really been to a science fiction and fantasy convention, right? Just one small local con is really it. So you've been a blogger all this time, and you're not really part of traditional fandom, then, as many people define it. No, I'm a I'm a books guy. I'm not part of fame in terms of going to cons. Uh, you know, I, I don't read many comics. I don't read much short fiction, and I don't watch much TV or go to movies. So I'm a, I'm a straight-up books guy, and I've been pretty much doing it the same way for 10 years now, so... So I, I have a little bit of geek cred, but not a whole lot. Well, or you have the ultimate geek cred, because, you know, the definition of a geek is like somebody who gets really into some amount of minutiae, and you've just dedicated yourself to one sole uh, piece. I like that better. That's yeah. that's a better way to put it. It makes yeah. you like the ultimate geek. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I've been to one local con, and it was one of George Martin was there, and, but that's really it. So you have to sort of look at all of the controversy that goes on with fandom with some measure of bemusement. Yeah, it's bemusement. It's a broken record. It comes back over and over and over again. And it's it's amusing to see how it comes back and things just don't ever seem to uh, change. Has blogging kind of substantially changed the way you read? 
Oh, absolutely. I would say it's maybe a much better reader and, uh, you know, frankly, a better person and just more aware of things. I've, I've always been a progressive person, but, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have said I was colorblind and genderblind and reading preferences and choices. And, uh, you know, I've since uh, come to realize that position of privilege. I'm kind of the ultimate, you know, white guy, upper middle class white guy. So, uh, so it had never really uh, meant anything to me. But uh, I've had the opportunity to learn and grow as a per person and as a reader. So, uh, for that, I, I'm very thankful of blogging because it's it's changed a lot of how I read. So it's changed the way you sort of pick the things you read. I agree with that. I've had a very similar experience uh, over the last couple of years, but. Uh, what about like the way you actually like once you start the book and you're reading it? I mean, have you become a much more critical reader than you were before? I would say it actually it's it's waxed and waned throughout my blogging time. Uh, for a while, I was you know taking notes while I read books and stuff, and and it started to take the joy of reading away, and it made it kind of like a job, and so I threw that out the window. And uh, you know, for me, the measure of a good book is one where I'm not thinking about what I'm going to blog or how I'm going to review the book, but I'm just sitting back and enjoying the book. So that's what I'm after. Yeah, I, uh, I've never been a note taker. Uh, I, I do know people who take meticulous notes while they read it. I, I suck some of the joy out for me. Like, I, I definitely want to forget that I'm going to write about the book while I'm reading it, usually. The idea that at the end of it you have to sort of try to form coherent thoughts, and I think you've taken a great approach in recent years of just sort of saying, like, I'm not going to review everything, because... God knows it, that gets harder and harder as we uh, get older with more responsibilities. But Lev Grossman said something once about like reviewing and what he thought made a good review. Uh, he actually said it on my show, which was that it was essentially emoting in public and that that was really what made a, a compelling piece of uh, reviewing. What do you think about that? Well, I'm a big uh, believer that there's uh, that a reviewing is... A review is an opinion. It's all subjectivity. There's nothing. There's no objectivity in reviewing. Uh, you know, maybe a, an academic critique. You could actually make an argument for being objective about something, but for, for a review, you're you're giving an opinion. And uh, I think the best reviews embrace that it's your opinion. Uh, that doesn't mean everybody's going to agree with your opinion, but it's your opinion. So stick with it. Now, hopefully it's an informed opinion and you can back it up with something because otherwise you're, there's nothing there. You're doing a, a Twitter statement of 140 characters. But, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in it just being a good opinion. And I've, my reviews have kind of gone that way. Uh, I, I like to say flat out, I really liked this book or I didn't really like this book. So one of the funny things about blogging is, so not only does it sort of change the way you read uh, and make you a different kind of reader, but it also really changes um, the actual like process of getting a book. And I'm curious, uh, you know, I know you are one of the more uh, prolific acquirers of review copies out there for whatever reason, I think largely because you've been around for so long. So you have a lot of books at home. Uh, as I'm starting to accumulate quite a few myself, uh, when was the last time you bought a book, a genre book? I probably buy half a dozen a year. So I've bought a couple uh, recently. Uh, I wasn't on the Saga Press uh, mailing list when they initially got started. So I think I, I bought The Grace of Kings, though I haven't read it yet. So 
that's one of the more recent ones. And sometimes, you know, even publicists that I know and have worked with, I can tell them, I want to read this book and I won't get a copy of it for whatever reason. And, you know, I try to, you know, check the privilege and be like, well, if you're not going to send me your book, I'm not going to read it. If it's a book I really want, I'll go buy it. Yeah, I find myself, uh, I don't buy a lot of books necessarily that I, uh, that are forthcoming that I want to read. What I find myself doing more of is, so for example, with Joe Abercrombie's new series, I am obviously an unabashed Joe Abercrombie fan. So they sent me the arc of all three books. And I got the finished hard copies of the second and third book, but I never got a finished hard copy of the first book. So I will go buy that because that's, you know, I have to have the book. Uh, so I find myself doing that more where like I'd, I'll read the arc and I'll really like it, but I don't get a finished copy. So I'll go buy a finished copy because I want one uh, as opposed to sort of buying things I want to read, I find. Yeah, I understand. I try to fill them, but I have overflowing bookcases and piles of books on the floor. So it's always a shelf uh, constraint for me. And I, I really have to ask myself, is that a book that I'm really going to read? Because... I was guilty, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I was buying 100 books a year, so. No, I, that's, yeah, it's, it's the truth. I think in some ways I, uh, I started blogging to save my marriage because my wife was looking at the uh, book bill, and she was like, all right, man, cool it, you know? Yes, that is true. It was a, it was a big bill in the past, and, and it's not quite what it used to be, but, uh, yeah. I do find it interesting, though, that sometimes it seems publishers you know, categorize and send male author books to male reviewers, and uh, I don't get as many uh, female author books. And I don't know if that's real or not. It's an observation I've made. It's a really interesting one. Uh, I had some thoughts about that as well. At one time, before I closed my blog, Sarah Chorn of Bookworm Blues and I were keeping a spreadsheet of everything that we were sent. First, we were going to do it for six months and then publish the results after it just to sort of see if there was any you know, bias within this very limited sample, obviously, and what conclusions you could draw from it are really none, but it would have been just sort of interesting. We only made it about two months before I decided to close my blog, but we were starting to see some trends, and, and I think some of that's true. It sort of maybe predisposes by men typically review more men, right? Yeah. And women typically yeah, review more women. I've been guilty of that, too. Yeah. I think it's definitely an issue when we talk about sort of uh, the review blog problem. And, you know, Renee from Lady Business did a great survey a couple years about review patterns, it is definitely driven by what we get sent. I mean, I only review what I get sent. Yeah, I remember that uh, we first did that, or at least when I was first linked to it. I'm not sure if it was our first year or not, but, uh, you know, it made me think pretty hard. And I went back and I looked at the books and and I was getting sent, uh, I think, over 75% male-authored books. So, so if you just take the percentage off the top, I was predisposed to uh, reading and reviewing far more male authors than female authors. I'm curious, as a younger reader, were you were you kind of like me, where you weren't really steering yourself toward women authors consciously? No, oh, yeah, not at all. I wasn't thinking about it at all. But at the same time, I think that if, as a younger reader, if you would have looked at the books, I, I'm guessing I was in the 10, maybe 20% range of female authors, so... Well, I was probably two, but it, and the ones I did, I was reading was frankly probably a mistake. You know, like Celia Friedman and uh, and Robin Hobb and uh, C.J. Cherry, people I didn't know were women. So, yeah, so let me ask you a question about the blog. I, you know, we're seeing a lot of blogs close. You know, I obviously I closed my blog 
uh, you know, you look back at James Long and uh, Mark Chitty and uh, a long list of bloggers that were, you know, prolific for a long time, uh, Amanda Rudder, and then just sort of had dropped off and slowly closed over time. And uh, I think we're going to see some more closing here in the near future, which I may have knowledge of but can't share publicly. And Oh, you tease. <laughs> what do you think is driving that? Do you think there is less of a purpose for the blog today, or do you think it's just sort of natural attrition and people will rise up to fill the ranks? Well, it's, I think there's multiple reasons. Uh, the names you just listed off, almost all of those people went into the publishing business. And so whether they closed it because they perceived a conflict of interest or they just no longer had time, I'm not sure. But uh, a lot of them went to publishing. And whether that was their end goal or just a great opportunity that came along, I can't speak to. You get into blogging when you're young, uh, before you're married, before kids, before you have the high-profile career or whatever, and uh, you just get so busy that uh, your your free time's precious, and you don't don't do it. Uh, don't have time for blogging anymore. Uh, do you think there's something to be said for like the RSS feed kind of fading away? I mean, that was like the way that a lot of us got blogs, and now it seems like everything's driven by social media, so it doesn't really matter where you post; there will be people to read it. Yeah, you see, I'm I'm solidly kind of Gen X, and you know my RSS feed is still alive and well, and I I get my news from there every day. So, so I know it's dying away, but uh, I use it. So Twitter is is definitely where all the discussion has gone, um, and is a lot of ways the replacement for an RSS feed. You know, you mentioned it earlier the the potential demise of blogs coming down and. Uh, the media's got to move on somehow, and I'm not sure what it's going to be, if it's going to be more Tumblr-like, if it's going to be something else altogether, if it's going to be audio or video. I, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, and maybe the blogs will have staying power as, you know, something that's, you know, not, not necessarily the big thing, but something that goes on uh, in the background for a long time to come. Uh, but part of the attrition in blogs has got to be due to just the uh, the staleness of the media's Vlogs probably peaked, what, seven years ago? Uh, you know, they've been around for 15 years or so. I think that's true. And a lot of, you know, another thing we've talked about is sort of the mega sites picking people up and sort of giving them a, a venue and a forum and paying them, you know, or, uh, even if they're not paying them. But if they're paying them, obviously, it's hard to run a blog for free when somebody's going to pay you to do the same writing somewhere else, perhaps. Yeah, and early in the... In uh, my blogging, I, I used to blog for other websites as well just to kind of get my name out there. And, you know, this is a hobby for me. I, I, I don't want to make money. I don't want to do anything. So I, I call that up, and I'm, I don't look to, to make any money, and I don't look to, to get my name out there. You know, I don't do blog tours. I don't I don't try to get my name uh, to review elsewhere. Uh so I think I'm kind of unique in that, and frankly, I think that's why I'm still around, is because I, I don't have ambitions, and I'm happy with a, a low, steady, you know, low output, rather than trying to, to be a bit ambitious about it all. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think most of the bloggers who stuck around are, A, not fiction writers, because anybody who wants to write fiction eventually tires of blogging because it takes so much time away from writing other things and B, have no interest in working in publishing. And if you have ambitions for either of those things, eventually you're going to give it up because something better will come along than continuing to invest your time that way. But if it's strictly a hobby, 
I think you're much more likely to stick it out. Yeah, exactly. And, and I don't mean to knock ambition. I certainly have ambition in other parts of my life. It's just this isn't one of them. I'm a very different internet personality than I am in real life. And, you know, most of my friends in real life have no idea that I blog and would probably be shocked to learn that I have a science fiction and fantasy book blog. Somebody, somebody I work with uh, Googled me at one point and, like, pulled me aside at a convention and, like, a conference, a work conference. He was like, hey, man. Is that you? <laughs> I was like, I was like, yeah, that's me. He's like, that's pretty weird, man. I was like, yeah, that- yeah. But I said, don't tell other people. <laughs> He's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's why I, uh, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago, I really tried to pull back from using my last name in public space for that reason. Um, Anybody who's really savvy with Google will find it eventually, but you have to dig hard enough to where it's not obvious. Yeah, I just keep it off my Twitter feed. I feel like that's enough. You know, I'm not really embarrassed if, like, people realize that I blog, but my Twitter feed is kind of, it's so genre-y that, and I say so many controversial things about genre that I would rather it wasn't associated with my public persona. I don't ever want to go for a job interview and have some age person in, in a screening interview ask me about my blogging. I know, right? It's kind of bound to happen, though. It's, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe at some point it'll probably happen. Well, I've gotten to the point now, though, kind of where sometimes I'm like, should I put this on my resume? Well, I, I agree. I mean, I, I write a lot for work, and, and I think that I've gotten to be a better writer through the reviewing I've done over the years. So there's definitely some advantage to it. And if I was really desperate, I'd probably pull it out and throw it out there and see if it got me anything. Um, all right. So we've kind of had some fun talking about blogs, but uh, we started this whole thing by like, we're going to drink beer and answer random questions on Twitter. So let's answer some random questions on Twitter. You ready? All right. But I'm drinking whiskey. Do it. At Renee, our, our dear friend at Renee says, Dear Rockatalk, if you could only read fanfic for the next six months, what one universe would you read fanfic in? You know, if Renee was writing it, maybe Scalzi's universe. She does She does love some, some John Scalzi, that's for sure. Uh, like the Old Man's War universe? Yeah, that'd probably be a really fun one to, to read some good fanfic. It's got a lot of potential. It's a good universe. I... I think I would probably be the most ensnared by Wheel of Time fanfic. Uh, I would be too, to be honest, because, I mean, you know, confession time, that's my roots and genres. I got into all this by reading Wheel of Time. You know, I was on the Wheel of Time message boards for years, you know, writing fan theories and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it I, could, I could get into that. Me too, man. I started off on a Wheel of Time forum in, on AOL back in, like, man, that must have been, like, 94, 95? Yeah, that predates me. I think it was 98 for me. Yeah, so I was on this forum. It was, like, a role-playing forum, a role-playing fanfic forum. And uh, I, I, like, I was a warder, and I had had an an Aes Sedai, and, like, we met in person and, like, quasi-dated. It was bizarre. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was hardcore. Yeah, so I, I'd go wheel of time. I, you know, I've, I deep. I, I recognize that it sucks, but I love it. Here's here's a, a a bit of a industry-ish question. If you were to enter the overcrowded space of short fiction magazines, how would you position your entry? That's from at 
W.M. Henry Morris? That's a tough question. I've actually thought about this a lot because I've, uh, Jared Shuren and I have bandied about various ideas of this at some point. I think what I would do is I would find an intellectual property from 40, 50, 60 years ago, something like Amazing Stories, but not Amazing Stories because that's kind of been butchered already, or, uh, you know, something like Omni, which again, somebody's trying to resuscitate unsuccessfully, but to take some, some property like that, that has name ID and try to launch it, uh, I would definitely not kickstart it. I would try to find some traditional funding for it because I, I find the Kickstarter model uh, a challenge at best in terms of long-term sustainable funding because I think that's the key to any short fiction venue is it has to be self-sustaining. And uh, to do that, you need subscribers, which means you need to uh, go find people, sort of not rely on them to find you. So I think that's, I think the positioning in terms of subject matter is less important than positioning from a business sense. I think that's the biggest problem in publishing writ large is everybody's too worried about positioning themselves creatively and not as worried about positioning themselves from a business perspective. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and I think that, 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 that people also need to be, make sure you have a real dedicated leader who's not going to give up on it when it gets hard. And, and frankly, in this day and age, maybe they need to get a, a nice, wealthy benefactor. No, that, that's, that's true, man. The, uh, the reality is short fiction magazines, at least in today's market, they're just not going to make money. So if you're really going to do one, you've got to be willing to lose money, I think. I think so. I think it's got to be a labor of love. At Alex Ristea says, if you could only reread one book for the rest of your life, what would it be? You know, even though I'm not a big short fiction reader, it would be a collection of short fiction. I'm not sure which one, but something with a, a, some nice variety. And if it's the only book uh, I'd ever read again, it'd have to have a really big escapist quality. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing about an anthology because it sort of like gives you opportunities to create stories in your own head from like a lot of different sort of milieus. With that in mind, I might pick the Bible <laughs> because it's very long and you can pretty much read into it whatever you want, which I think from a stuck with for the rest of your life uh, might be kind of interesting uh, as a text because... I don't think a genre book in and of itself would maintain my interest. It has to have a timeless quality, you know, almost story, uh, fairy tale type quality to, to really last a lifetime. I'm trying to think of like what my favorite book of all time is, because I think that's kind of what the question is geared toward. Like, what's your favorite book? And uh, I mean, for me, that's something by Joe Abercrombie. I don't know which one I would pick, but... But again, those books would lose their appeal after the fourth or fifth time. I'd, I'd be sort of like, I know what these things are doing, and I'm bored. Yeah, I've always had a challenge with lists of favorites because it just depends on what mood I'm in as to what I'm going to pick. It's true. All right, so uh, here's here's a fun one, and I don't know if you have much of a connection to this, but we'll see. Uh, at, <laughs> this is funny, uh, you know Charles Tan. Yeah, uh, well, I don't know him well or anything. But. Well, you know him on Twitter. Every time I see his Twitter handle, I always think it says Charles Satan. <laughs> so, I can see that, yeah. Yeah, it's just the way it spells out. But anyway, uh, at Charles Etan says, what do you think about the World Fantasy Awards? Well, this has got to be about your conspiracy theories, man. I do have some conspiracy theories. <laughs> they're not really theories so much as they're fact, but... <laughs> 
uh, it's not really that it's a conspiracy. It's just, it just seems to me very strange that an award two years in a row is putting judges on the ballot. Uh, like, I understand the mechanism of the World Fantasy Award that some of the nominations are put there by fan vote and some are put there by the judges. And so I would presume that the judges who have been on there the last two years on the ballot are put there by the fans. And so I guess if you squint it that sideways, you can kind of get there mentally. But it's absurd. It's freaking absurd. If you agree to be a judge, you should be ineligible. And I don't really see any scenario where where it's okay for the judge to be on the ballot. You know, I, I think the World Fantasy Awards put a lot of things on the ballot that I wouldn't, because it's a lot of its horror. It has a long horror tra- tradition, and it's a lot of small press horror, which I, I'm just not into it, but I can get past that. If every award has its own personality. What I can't get past is the fact that they keep putting judges on the ballot. It just drives me batty. It doesn't look good, especially in this era of awards not looking good. The World Fantasy Award often shine, and to have anything negative like that is just unfortunate. At J. Sutton Morris asks, what hooks you early on in a book? What drives you out? And how often are you able to approach a book with no expectations? That's a lot of questions. Uh, so let's start with the first one. What hooks you on a book? Voice. Uh, the voice hooks me. If, if a book has a strong, unique voice, it's going to hook me instantly. Uh, you know, like Karen Memory uh, by Elizabeth Bear is a very good example of that. Uh, you know, that's a very strong voice that just instantly grips you. Uh, you know, The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin is another book that has a very strong voice, uh, as well as some narrative techniques that really get you right at the beginning. Or they got me anyway. Yeah, it's funny. I just started The Fifth Season, an audiobook, and I found it very dislocating, uh, but possibly because it's an audio. I may start it in a hard copy and then transition to the audio because I feel mm-hmm. like some of the narrative techniques are kind of hard to grasp right away. But, uh, but yeah, I agree with you. Voice is a big one. For me, it's also asking me a question that I have to answer. I think it's, uh, it's a much underused technique. And I, and actually somebody asked us a question earlier about, or asked us a question about John Galt and why anybody cares. But actually, I think, what John Galt represents is this sort of blatant and obvious narrative technique, which is ask a question in the beginning that I don't know and want to know. And I'll keep reading for a really long time, even if it's dribble, because I want to know the answer. So, Yeah, I, the best example I think of that is, is Stephen King's Gunslinger. I think the first line of that book is something like, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. And it's instantly like, why? And so it's got you right there. Yeah, Cameron Hurley's first line. Uh, Nick's, I think this is it. I'm off the top of my head. Nick's uh, sold her womb. And you're yeah. kind of like, what? <laughs> you know? And that is God's War. Yeah, you're just like, what? Like, why? Yeah, I think that's a great way. It always works for me. You get me with questions. It's like Da Vinci Code. That book sucks. But you, you want to know what's happening so bad that, that you'll keep reading even though it sucks. Okay, so the next question that he asked was, uh, what drives you out of a book right away? Uh, these days, it's violence against children, and that's just my own personal having young kids and violence against children touches too close to home, and uh, no, I can't do it. It's interesting because the fifth season in the first chapter, there's there's a dead I kid. Know. And I, and I, I know. I know. I almost bounced because of that, and I'm glad I didn't, but... 
I think it's just because the violence was off screen. Yeah, no, I agree. Violence against children is is really hard for me. Uh, I'm reading a, a manuscript right now from uh, a fairly well-known epic fantasy writer, and he's got this young girl that follows around this very violent character, and I'm like, you better not do anything to her, man. <laughs> I, I'm listening to Steven Erickson's Malazan books on audio, and there's a lot of violence against children, and if I had started those books when I had kids, I never would have made it through that series. Uh, so that's just an interesting thing about uh, where you are in life, because I love that series, but I don't think I could have stomached it uh, at this stage of my life. Yeah. For a purely writing technique thing, the one thing that really bounces me out quick is if you play the game as a writer where you're like, she walks into the room and she looks around. She doesn't know where she is, et cetera, et cetera. It's just she, 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 and you, you're not telling me who the character is to create some artificial tension about what the character is and what they're doing. It feels really cheap to me. Uh, it's the same thing where they use like it, you know, it happened, it did this. And I'm like, just tell me what it is. Like you're, you're obviously narrating it to me. So you know what it is. Why are you hiding it from me? That drives me nuts. Yeah, I can't. I, I really dislike it when an author is too coy like that. They they want to be mysterious, and, and the result is they they're just obstinate. And I can't. Yeah, I agree with that one as well. Yeah, for me, it always comes down to if the narrator knows it, why don't I know it is the reader? If you're hiding, it, it, that's a bad reason to hide something. You're hiding it strictly for narrative tension and not for any other reason. It feels cheap. Uh, and then his last question was, how often do you approach a book with few expectations? I find as a blogger, this is really hard for me because I approach almost every book with expectations. It can be very hard just because so many of the books I pick up are, even as a blogger, it's because I've seen an early opinion by somebody else I trust. But, you know, it happens. I, I, I try to never read a synopsis of a book, even if it's a, one that I think I'm going to like. So I, I try to hold myself back from that. But uh, Uprooted by Naomi Novik was uh, an example of a book. I didn't know what to expect with that. And even the jacket blurb is is over with and done in the first chapter. So that was a book where I had very few expectations going into because I hadn't actually read the reviews, just heard the buzz. You know, it's same for me, actually. I uh, Uprooted was one of those ones that I went into with uh, no expectation whatsoever. I remember seeing an early like NetGalley copy come out of it and I was like oh I don't want to read that I've read her other books and didn't really like them so I didn't even think about it and then a finished copy showed up on my door one day and I was like well all right I'll read it and uh like instantly fell in love with it and of course then I was responsible for giving all kinds of people expectations about that book because I did nothing but rave about it for weeks uh, you know, me included in that. I mean, I didn't know what to expect, but I had some expectations because you were, uh, you and others were, were just singing its praises. But I, I love the book too, so you predisposed me in the correct way, I, I guess. Excellent. All right. Uh, a little bit of silly question. At Valerie Valdez asks, how many cookies can you fit in your mouth? You know, my seven-year-old son knows the answer to that question for him. He can tell me how many marshmallows he can fit in his mouth. Like I'm going to say marshmallows or little marshmallows. The full size, that, you know, he had a he had a competition at camp. I think he got like eight, which he's seven. I can't believe he got eight marshmallows in there. Somebody at the camp, uh, one of his counselors, got twenty-one. Wow. 
this is obviously a question of like what kind of cookie are we talking about, right? I mean, it, like Oreos are very dry, and so you might only be able to fit. You know, it's you're not just limited by space; you're also limited by like the dust going up your nose. Uh, so I think like a really moist cookie, like fresh out of the oven chocolate chip cookies, like I could probably fit a dozen or more, but, uh, you know, a drier cookie, I think it's going to be a, a much smaller number. Yeah, it depends on how big. I would probably get around it by going for the cookie dough so I could get more bang for my buck and, and just cram in more density that way. And increase your chances of salmonella poisoning, which, you know, is always the ideal. Yeah, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's see here. Here's a big one. At Jamie Lee Moyer, tour author, what will it take to equalize the exposure women series writers get versus what men writing series get? I would love to say more women in publishing, but the industry is already dominated by women, so that's not doing it. I don't know. That's a tough one. I think that, uh, that continued pushing it never die down. Keep the awareness alive. Uh, online, I think people are more and more uh, aware of this. Uh, people like you and me are, are presumably raising our kids to, to, to think about this more. I mean, I know that I have conversations about it with my seven-year-old son of, you know, have you noticed that this movie only has one girl in it? Do you think that's fair? And I think it's the same way. It's it's probably a, a generation or two away of, of people learning more and uh, passing it on to the next generation. We're, we're already broken somewhat. Uh, the best we can do is be aware of, of, of our brokenness and try to fix it for the future. Yeah, I've, I kind of thought about this question. And, of course, the obvious loophole is it depends on the genre, right? So women writing urban fantasy probably... Certain women in urban fantasy probably get big pushes, you know. That said, Jim Butcher and Kevin Hearn certainly get as much or more. You know, the, the Kelly Armstrongs and Patricia Briggs. But then if you look at epic fantasy, right, for example, which is heavily male-dominated, if you put together an epic fantasy list of writers, you go through six or seven men before you see the first woman, and then it's Robin Hobb, and then you probably have to wait another 10 or 15 names before you get to the next woman. Uh, and that's just kind of the way that genre is thought about. And so I think when you, if you were to look at, uh, I'm thinking of uh, a couple of recent series that came out, and one of them is, you know, Elizabeth Bear's uh, Range of Ghost series, the Eternal Sky trilogy. And, Eternal and, Sky, yeah. Yeah, and then you think about, say, Brian Stavely's The Emperor's Blades books. You know, Elizabeth Bear's been writing for 10 years and published like 30 books in that time. You know, Brian just put out his first two books. And yet, you know, sort of... It, it, and it, a lot of it's, like, illusion, right? So it seems like The Emperor's Blade's got a way bigger push than, say, Range of Ghosts. Did it? I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it looks like it. It looked like it did. But I think a lot of it, too, is sort of the mysteries of publishing. Like, we don't really know... Because you see publicity, you see marketing, you see sales. I don't think any of us really have an idea about what goes in to the push or the buzz or the marketing of a book and some of it's organic so is it publishing that's not pushing as hard or is it the public that isn't in, isn't as receptive or is it a combination of both yeah that's, that's a that's probably a chicken and egg issue because you got to think that the marketing is based on numbers and so they do that and they repeat what's worked in the past and so that kind of stifles innovation for correcting issues in the future so yeah i 
you know, market forces can certainly fix an issue, but I, you know, I think it just comes with greater awareness and never letting it go. You know, hopefully in future generations we get it right. And I, I do think that it's starting to, to infiltrate publishing. I think they're starting to notice it. You know, whether in a profit-driven environment people are willing to take take that push and say, well, we don't care what's worked before or whatever, we're going to push anyway. I think a lot of it also is built on this misconception that men will only read men and women will read whatever, which is sort of silly when you consider the fact that the vast majority of readers are women. And so it's almost like the the, the, the publishing yeah. world markets to a smaller marketing group because they take the other marketing group for granted. Uh, okay, let's, who do you think... Uh, this is from at Rob H. Bedford, your friend and mine. Two questions. We'll go to the first one, which is, who do you think would be a good uh, recipient of the World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement Award? Just so you know, that is an award to a living writer of fantasy. Uh, without looking at the specific criteria of the award, the award and who's gotten it before, you know, We've said her name before. Elizabeth Bear is a, a writer who has an extremely wide range of talents that I, I could see being uh, rewarded in something like that. I think there's probably, you know, half a dozen or more people that could really uh, deserve an award like that. Uh, lifetime achievement, you know, that maybe needs more than 10 years of work, but I don't know. Somebody like Elizabeth Bear would, would, would be, uh, be top, uh, you know. Yeah, she's probably got to wait a few years just to be around longer, but I think you're, you're probably right. She'll definitely be on that list. I, for me, it would probably, I'd probably look toward Robin Hobb or Kate Elliott, uh, people who've been publishing for a really long time, I think, uh, and, and are still publishing, uh, very prolifically and, and incredibly well. Uh, I think sometimes we're predisposed for these awards to sort of gravitate toward people who are maybe no longer publishing and kind of close to the end. And while I get that mentality, I think I would rather reward people who are still deeply into the career, uh, but are, but have been doing it for a really long time and have been hugely formative to the people that are coming up in the genre. So I think I would probably lean toward rewarding those types. And I think, you know, Robin Hobb, there's no question that the, in my opinion, the entire grimdark movement really began partially with Robin Hobb. You know, Mark Lawrence doesn't exist without Robin Hobb. Say what you will about Mark Lawrence. <laughs> you know, some people love him, some people don't. Uh, but I think she's hugely influential and continues to write just some of the stuff that I think is simply some of the best work out there. So, I don't know. She'd probably be who I'd give it to. Yeah, she'd be a, a good one, particularly for, I mean, she's been doing it for a long time. Uh, Kate Elliott would be another one, like you mentioned. Kate's probably too young, too. <laughs> she's to, she's got she's got to hang around for, for another decade. But, uh, yeah. Okay, and then Rob's other question which of us is a bigger fan of David Anthony Durham's Acacia? I don't know, man. I was first. You were first. Uh, you, you wrote one of the most insightful things I saw written about his book, which is that you called it a fantasy, uh, that uh, epic fantasy uh, concerned with upsetting the status quo, where the vast majority of fantasy is about sustaining the status quo. Yeah, and I love to see that that's not such a rare thing anymore. But, you know, even 10 years ago when, when uh, Durham first got on the scene, it was a, it was a new thing to see uh, somebody really fighting for something that wasn't the status quo. And he, ch he took on a lot of different issues with that book. And uh, hopefully he'll, he'll give us another fantasy series uh, instead of just uh, some of the historical fiction that he kind of has his roots in. 
Yeah, he's definitely hasn't he hasn't really published in I think like maybe four years. And uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of his. I always felt like that series kind of got a raw deal because of where it was published. Uh, yeah, I have no idea how it sold, but it was published by a mainstream imprint as opposed to a fantasy imprint. So I feel like it never really caught on with fantasy readers like it should have. Yeah, that one was a challenge because it was all, like you said, it was published by more of a mainstream uh, publisher, I think, to capture some of his literary and historical fiction audience that, that he had been passed. And that was one of those uh, books that, unfortunately, I, I was told that it got shelved in like the African-American literature section instead of fantasy sections, which, uh, you know, that's just a shame that it got boxed and typecast like that. Jonah Sutton Morris, one of the people who tweeted us earlier, was saying, give me a reason to finish Acacia, because I think he was a little put off by how traditional it appears as an epic fantasy, uh, sort of in a, from, especially from a modern reader. It is very much like, well, you know, the dark-skinned people live down there, and the, and the, the, you know, the, the, the strange people live over here, and the fair-haired people live over here. Four siblings of a monarch who fall on hard times, and... Yeah, it has a very big George Martin kind of mirror to it also. Uh, I I would say just keep going. It took me half the book before I got into the first book. Uh, you know, that's a hard sell sometimes for people. But uh, I think part of it's got a different style to his writing that takes more getting used to than, say, the traditional uh, epic fantasy. But uh, by book two, it's, it's getting different and progressive, and it's not fighting the status quo, and it's asking hard questions. Even book one's asking hard questions. I mean, they were selling people into slavery so they could get drugs to drug the population into submission. I mean, that's, uh, that's some pretty harsh stuff. Yeah, one of the most powerful scenes in that book is when one of the daughters, I forget which one, uh, visits the slave mines and like realizes what her father has been condoning and her whole family has been condoning for generations. Her having to kind of come to grips with that I thought was really, really well done. And I think that's about halfway through the first book. I also think that as the series progresses, it gets a little bit of a China Mievillian vibe, you know, with the, the way that the, uh, the strangeness of the other, of the other across the ocean people is very much not standard epic fantasy. Like it's pretty bizarre. Yeah, it is. It's it's got a strange quality to it that's uh, that's that's different. All right, so uh, let's do one more question, and then we're going to call it a day. And uh, it is by far the hardest hitting question of the evening, and it is: Why do hot dogs come in packages of ten, and hot dog buns come in packages of eight? You don't put two hot dogs in your hot dog bun. Yeah, at, at Tristan Zamboni. You don't even know how to eat a hot dog and you're asking that question? For me, it's because I like to eat um, everything two-handed. And so I don't actually put two hot dogs in the bun because that breaks the bun. So what I do is I take, I put one hot dog in the bun and then I hold a hot dog in my other hand. And so I take a bite of one and then put the hot dog in. It's it's sort of like Nathan's hot dog eating contest, only um, not as fast. So Yeah, you're soaking yours in beer instead of water. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I, I'm not too worried about my stomach exploding because I'm only going to eat 12 instead of 50. But I think it's it's pretty clear this this is this is American capitalism at its finest. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, what's the math? How many uh, how many hot dog buns and hot dog packages do you have to buy to get them to equal out? It's probably like eight or nine. So. Oh, that's a good question. So, what's the formula on that? Do you like multiply them together? So it's like you would need a hundred and twenty of both or something. I don't know. Well, it'd be eight and ten. So whatever's divisible by both of those. So forty. Whatever the total of forty is. So four. Four packages of hot dogs and uh, three, five packages of uh, buns. I don't know. Is that right? Whatever. I don't know. This is a genre podcast. We don't do math. But yeah, yeah I can just make up the math. It, it, and who knows? Maybe it goes back to the roots of like you know hot dogs and, and hot dog buns. You know, only being bought in bulk. You know, because it was a. It's it's clearly a party food. It's not if you're only buying one package of hot dogs and one package of hot dog buns. I mean, it's not really the way that the, the food was meant to be consumed. No, it's not. It's meant to be consumed with lots of friends. Um, and, and so you should be buying five packages or whatever it takes to, to even it out. So that's, that's, the, that's the lesson. Um, you, you need to buy more hot dogs. Okay, I think that's it. So people ask other, some other questions people asked that are really hard to answer that we're not going to answer. Like, at Mike Underwood said, what will it take to truly create a robust public ebook sales reporting system? Which, while I find interesting, I don't think either one of us are particularly qualified to answer. No, I'm not much of a coder. <laughs> and then somebody else asked, what can we do about all the books from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s that are out of print and drifting in limbo? Again, out above my pay grade. I can't solve, I can't solve all the problems of the world, unfortunately. But, uh, but this has been fun. Ken, I appreciate you coming on. No worries. Hopefully my last-minute fill-in isn't the most boring podcast ever for Rocket Talk. No, surely not. That was uh, the most boring Rocket Talk is surely one with Sam Sykes on it. For those who aren't aware of you, uh, Ken has been around for a long time. He's an excellent blogger and reviewer. You can find him at nethspace.blogspot.com or on Twitter at nethspace, correct? Correct. All right. This has been Rocket Talk. <laughs>